This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey guys, and welcome to the Rapcast. Whether you're listening on the podcast channel or the YouTube channel, I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. And this episode is, of course, another in the series of Outside Looking In, where basically I talk to somebody who is in the market, pays attention to the market of another NBA team, and we talk about that team. You, the listener, learn about all 29 teams beside the Raptors, and we also learn a little bit of a consensus on the Raptors, considering we get 29 different opinions on the team that you so love and enjoy. And today we're talking about the Hornets and the Raptors and Brian Geisinger, Geisinger, which, which is it? Geisinger off to a great, off to a strong start here. <laughs> yeah. Geisinger, but I don't mispronunciations are, uh, they happen frequently with this name. So, uh, I'm good with whatever, honestly. Well, it'll be Geisinger. So that's <laughs> okay. And so anyway, we're talking about the Hornets a very interesting team as far as team building goes, as far as what the coach does with is drawing up plays, X's and O's side of things, and one of the most exciting young players in the game, LaMelo Ball. Brian, before we get into the hornets of it all, I did recently do very other team-centric podcasts, so we'll start off with the Raptors on this one. So if I had to ask you like three words, like the job interview type question, three <laughs> words to describe yourself, only let's do the Raptors. Oh, well, with Raptors, I would say uh, hooked beaks, carnivores, and uh, strong eyesight, right? Uh, no, no, no. Um, with, with, with the actual basketball team Raptors, um, I would say, you know, I feel like everyone's going to use some version of long or rangy. So I'll say rangy. I'll say shape-shifting with a little hyphen in there. And I will also say unique um, because I do think they're playing sort of their own version of basketball and just it's it's sort of tough to not watch what they do defensively and not think of that, uh, at least on my end, in terms of their identity. So I'll say rangy, shape-shifting and unique. So let's dig down onto the shape-shifting aspect of it then. So if I told you, hey, I, wa- I want you to explain to me why you think you know, shape-shifting is an apt uh, designation for this team. What would you, what would your response be? I think it's just how versatile they are in terms of the defense. I'm of the mind that I I do think I cover college basketball. And so in the ACC, there's a team like Georgia Tech that changes defenses frequently where every third time down the court, you're going to get a different look. And even mid possession, you might see that one, three, one zone flip into a matchup based man to man. And that is something that I kind of think that is a trend we're going to start seeing more and more across high-level basketball, uh, the NBA, college, et cetera, seeing defenses that are sophisticated both in terms of um, how they want to start with matchups, how they want to draw coverages, 
but also how they're going to be sort of aggressive and take the fight to the offense by changing up looks um, in a relatively short period of time. And I just think that's something with what Toronto is able to do with their length, with their versatility, with the, the aggressive switching, with the aggressive help. The, I believe, as you've put, put it a couple of times, the democratic rim protection. Um, I just think all of that are sort of trends. If, you're, if a team has the personnel to do it, that we will start to see, um, you know, pop up more frequently. But yeah, that to my, to, in my opinion, that's what I think of, of, of as sort of like having a lot of, of, of as being shape shifting in terms of defense, having throwing different looks and being versatile to the point where during the middle of a possession or depending on how, what an offense is throwing at the Toronto, they can respond to that. So you're by no means required to have like a great answer to this next question, but when I think of the Raptors, they play one of the most versatile types of defense, but they also don't have the personnel to play some of the more conservative types of defense. So I'm curious if you think, when you think of it from that point of view, do you think of them as versatile in that sense? Or there have been a couple guests who have said, maybe they're actually stuck doing one thing, except it is just happens to be one of the most versatile types of defenses or less access types of defenses. Yeah, so it, I don't know. Is the is the premise here that the Raptors like where are they limited in terms of personnel here? Is that like sort of not having maybe like a traditional center? Is that where people are sort of like looking in terms of like roster constraints? So I think a lot of people when they think of defense in the NBA, a lot of it includes drop. And the mm. Raptors, they played it with Kem quite a bit. Precious saw a little bit of it as did Pascal. Uh, well, Scotty had a couple games too, but for the most part, they are not playing drop defense and they're also playing, uh, they're not really at home ever. They're constantly in motion. And while that is typically, we think of like the high end of basketball is a defense that's always in motion. A lot of the best defenses achieved by simplifying actions, like uh, mm -hmm. the Bucks doing lock and trail with their guards and just sitting one of Giannis or Brooke back at the rim it was the recipe for a great defense and stuff like that. So I'm curious to swing it to the next conversation, which is when Raptors fans typically think of this team, they think like this is the future of basketball. And there's an interesting conversation to be had about the correlation in your head when you think of, okay, they're doing like the six foot nine guys and their wings. And the wing has been the home of the generational transcendent superstars for some time now. Wing doesn't necessarily mean superstar. It means, you know, a certain archetype of skills, typically certain measurements, all that kind of stuff. And I know some people in the media market, some analysts and that kind of stuff say, this is the future of basketball. I'm curious if you think they're knocking on that door or if this is just them trying something unique and I guess detailing according to their current personnel. I think it can, I mean, not to hedge totally, but I think it can almost be part of both. Like they, they, this is the roster they've assembled, but there obviously are a lot of strengths to being able to play defense like that. And that's not like a, a knock on a team like Milwaukee that you just sort of named or the Lakers from a couple of years ago when they won the title in 2020, like drop defense can be insanely, uh, it, it, you know, can be very effective if you have the right personnel. I actually think, like coming from Charlotte's perspective, they drafted Mark Williams out of Duke in the first round. I think with the hopes that they would like to play more traditional 
for lack of a better term, they'd like to play more drop pick and roll defense with Williams. I don't think they have like the guard personnel to sort of like actually tap into that at this point defensively. Um, so I don't know, but at the same point in time, I think getting guys out there that are switchy, that can guard a lot of different positions with their length. I mean, it's the length in the switching that takes away advantages, right? And that's what an offense is all, well, everything in the half court is all predicated on, especially if you don't have just like a, you know, a guy that can break a game wide open. You, you don't have a Steph Curry type or whatever. But yes, yeah, switching is certainly the ability to, to take away advantages to force teams to play later into the shot clock. So the possession is inherently, you know, less, less efficient. I do kind of have a theory as well with like why people think, whether it's right or wrong, like why people think switching is sort of like at the forefront of um, like modern defense or whatever. I think a lot of that has to do with the, like the, the warriors. And I know the warriors are, they're, they're more versatile than this, but I'm talking about like death lineup warriors. If you're going back to like 2015 or whatever that in like the rockets who were with, with Chris Paul and James Harden were sort of like their, their primary rivals for, for a while. And Switching seemed switching was the base defense for those, those Houston teams and switching was the base for, you know, those Golden State crunch time lineups that had Draymond at five. And so I do think that plus just some sort of recency bias is kind of why people think of that as like it, this is this is the defense of the future. And I don't think it has to be wrong, but there are just so many there are so many ways to go about doing this. And I think really like the being forward thinking in terms of defense is all about versatility and being and having scheme versatility. Um, so switching is, I think is definitely a part of that, but um, it's nothing if, if you don't actually can't execute it correctly and don't have, you know, another sort of like base package to fall, fall on with. So a team like the Hornets, they switch a lot, but they're bad at it. <laughs> they're, they're not a good, they're not a good switching defense. Um, they, they often have to rely on, on zone, which is fine, but all too often the zone is used to like put out fires for them when really like, as opposed to the zone being your fastball, it should be your changeup. Um, I, at least that's, that's sort of like where I come from, like a philosophical standpoint. So I don't know if that answers your question or if that's just me sort of, <laughs> rambling about where I, where I think, you know, modern defense is, but I do think the Raptors like, yes, they've part of this is like, it's, it's guided to the personnel, but they've, they've drafted and assembled this roster sort of in that aim. You no, know? like I would imagine with, with, with going for guys like, uh, like Scotty um, uh, with, with a uh, band, like certain guys like that would be my guess is that they're hoping to to have a team that can be, versatile and, and switchy and stuff. So I don't know. What are, what, what, what is your answer to that question in terms of Toronto's defense? I'm, I'm the same as you in that I would probably, you know, say, Hey, I'm probably hedging on this one, but it is interesting because you bring up, it's that correlation thing I talked about with wings, the home of stars, the home of generational talent and the home of finals MVPs. Basically the same thing could be said of switching defense being correlated with the two, like the huge, the Rockets of that era were one of the best teams, maybe the best team that never won a title. They were tremendous, mm -hmm. right? They were going up against the Warriors with KD and they almost did it. That is nothing short of amazing because that team rolled everybody. But switching doesn't necessarily reach those heights. And that's where this is also something I talked about with Nakias and with Caitlin Cooper is that switching is seen as a complex scheme when actually it's the most simplistic. 
you just keep mm-hmm. the play in front of you. You brought up that great point about moving teams further back into the shot clock. And so there are these future facing aspects of it that, yes, that makes complete sense because you keep everything above the break and it's like, hey, you can move teams past their first option just by nullifying it with the switch. If you have the personnel, especially not to have to recover or scram at the back end or anything like that. And if you have the personnel, then 100%, that's the future of basketball because you don't have to concede anything. The screen, the advent of it, right, created an advantage for everybody in the half court to work from. And switching says no. And there's some screen your own stuff that goes on. Like the, I guess the the Mavericks ran some of that. Like if the Phoenix was pre-switching, then the guy who was coming to set the screen would screen the guy who was pre-switching and then Luca would walk in for a layup or something against mm-hmm. the Suns. And it's like, oh, that's pretty clever. There's always, you know, it's the the chess game of basketball. But I'm not really sure if that's the future, because I don't know if you can always nullify offense to that degree. And the Raptors also bring about that question because they don't stop everything at the point of attack, despite being quite switchy themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason what you brought up. Thank you for bringing up the Democratic Rim Protection thing. Because <laughs> I love that. But you brought it up is the Raptors have to pull off the strong side corner and rotate way more fiercely than Houston or the Warriors ever did because both of those teams were much better at keeping the ball above the break and in front of them. So I think the highest quality of defense that could ever be played probably is a switching scheme. Mm-hmm. However, playing that scheme is not the same as playing the best version of basketball. Although I'm very curious to see the Raptors after being ninth in defensive rating last year, being fourth over the last like 30 games or so, how with so much continuity on the roster, they're able to turn that into hopefully an even better defense this year. I think there's a lot of potential up there, especially there's Thaddeus Young was had, I think he ended up being like the plus minus king for the Raptors, given (laughs) the time played last year. And he is not the quickest. He's not the longest. However, he was able to find shortcuts within the defense. And I'm curious to see how good that defense can be when everybody understands at least some semblance of the shortcuts that were very apparent to Thad right away. That's that's really interesting. But enough about the Raptors defense. <laughs> LaMelo Ball is one of the most interesting players in the NBA. Scotty Barnes just won Rookie of the Year. I think that the fan bases respectively care most about those two players. So. Just to get the for any Hornets fans that come to watch this and want me to make a fool of myself talking about your team and (laughs) likewise for you talking about the Raptors. I think it would be fun if we try and map out a blueprint for development. You Mm -hmm. for Scotty, myself for LaMelo. And uh, I'll let you go first on that one. Scotty Barnes, the enigma that he is. What would you like to see over the next few years? Yeah, well, we can start with kind of like the known already and just. It, everyone listening to this uh, is going to know some of this stuff is just so painfully obvious when you watch him play, but just uh, he's a bully with the basketball, the physicality, the size, his ability to dominate, having the mentality to dominate. Um, I covered Scotty when he was at Florida state. And I mean, you think it's hilarious to watch him like overwhelm NBA athletes. There were times where, you know, there'd be a five ten guy on him or whatever. And it's just like, 
some of the funniest looking hook shot possessions you've ever seen with Scotty like 18 inches higher, you know, in terms of the release point than the dude guarding him, just comical stuff. Um, and I do think like the, the multi level scoring and facilitation are certainly uh, intriguing and, and certainly parts to build on. I think what he's able to do one-on-one is very impressive. And I think maybe some he benefits some by getting to play with, you know, good personnel around him. You know, he's got other two all-stars flanking him and a guy like OG, that's also pretty, pretty awesome. But his ability to just like roast guys one-on-one as a 19-year-old rookie or whatever, being able to operate in the mid-range, super impressive. And then his just like work as um, a helper on the other side of the court, let him rove, put out fires, switchy, can guard a bunch of different positions. Like I don't necessarily love his point of attack defense, or especially when it was at FSU. You could see guys with, you know, with screen rejections, with crossovers, could could attack a top foot and, and get by Scotty. Um, he could certainly like make up for some of that just due to his incredible length. But I also think he's got like there's an intangible component of his superstardom foundation, which is that just like the mentality is there. He wants it. You hear people talk about him. Leonard Hamilton, the coach at Florida State, would rave about this guy. Um, it's not just the the frame and the skills, but it is the fact that like he's a team first player. Like it's just it's it's an awesome guy that that a fan base and a franchise can sort of like wrap their arms around. It's going to be really fun to watch him there for the next decade plus. But as far as like next steps, I mean. I think some of it is sort of like low, there's like low hanging fruit in terms of like improving the shot. I don't know where, where did he end up in terms of percentage for three point wise this year, like low thirties, probably somewhere in, in that neck of the woods, I'm guessing. So I'll, I'll give you what I do know is that his short mid range and mid range popped off in a way that most people didn't see coming, yeah. especially the the short mid range. But as yeah. far as the three point shot, he had a super hot stretch in, I believe, November, where he was shooting 40-plus percent on pull-ups. <laughs> he was shooting 40-plus percent on catch-and-shoots. But at the end of it all, because his season, and this is what happens with a multi-talented rookie, is that during the break, during their first season, they're going to go through trends of trying out different things. Mm-hmm. And so he went through his trend of trying out the three-pointer, had a hot stretch, then it kind of fell to the wayside. He ended up at 30% at the end of it all. Yeah. But there was there was some pick and roll initiation late in the year. There was drop defense in December that he played. His off-ball defense got went from being a really big negative at the start of the year. He he mm-hmm. was he was completely absent-minded on that end and was, had difficulty navigating the larger floor as far as responsibilities, how his adjacency to the basket, that kind of stuff. And that got much better throughout the season. And uh, especially crashing the glass is probably the most consistent thing. Like you talked about having the superstar mindset, the not just to impose his will as a guy on ball, but to impose his physicality at all points in time. But yeah, uh, yeah. 30% is where he yeah. ended up that that's like going to get better. And I mean, if, if he ever does become like kind of a reliable, you know, pull up three point shooter. Um, I mean, I, I don't even think he like needs that necessarily to like ascend to being a superstar. We talked about the mid range scoring, the mid range usage, like that is the area 
where stars where stars are still allowed to like operate and score. So the fact that Scotty can do some of that stuff already at a, at a pretty, you know, at a, at a high level is impressive. I would just say on top of like the shot improving, um, you know, becoming, you know, improving in terms of like screen manipulation. I think he's a pretty creative passer and, and certainly is like unselfish, but just the ability to, to, to make all the passes like he can, because of his size and because of the, the length of his arms, it's like he conceivably could make every pass in the book, you know, like he can just see passing windows that a lot of guys can't. And I mean, you're about to talk about uh, LaMelo, like he's not as big as Scotty, but he has, sort of access to some of these same advantages just because of his, the sort of like, you know, potential to be a, I hesitate to use the word jumbo because these, you know, Lamelo is not Luca or whatever in terms of size and bulk, but to be the big, the big creator. Um, so I would say with Scotty, it is for him, like the, cause he's already has the ability to attack mismatches, to beat guys up one-on-one, to screen and take a switch and take that guy into the post and score a bunch of different ways so I already really like a lot of what he's doing from the mid range on in. Um, and I also love his ability to score in like weird ways too, to get putbacks. Like I like those kind of like scavenge points. Um, you don't, doesn't need a play drawn up for him. It doesn't need an isolation to get into it, but I would say it seems like the three point shot becoming like a more, uh, you know, just improving as a passer and becoming more uh, manipulative, reading backline coverages, dictating those, making sure that those screen actions are happening on, on his terms, um, I think are sort of like the next steps for Scotty, but he's probably a guy that I don't think you want to like put into a box, right? Like it, this guy is, he's unique and, and, and special and uh, a clearly going to be a force for a long time in the NBA. And I think he couldn't develop, there are so many different bands with him, I think in terms of like high end development that maybe even look a little bit different, but ultimately resort to him, result in him becoming a, you know, multiple time all-star and a guy that's just routinely taking 50 win teams into the playoffs, that type of stuff. You brought up the scavenging points and that, that I love that aspect of his offense because when I wrote that big article on him and I was going through all his possessions, I had to decide what I would mark as self-creation and what I wouldn't. And the decision was that I would count his offensive rebounds as a type of creation for himself. And not that you can count. He did have a lot of like late tip-ins, you know, fourth yeah. quarter tip-in scoring, which is great. It's hard to control for that. But he had enough control and consistency that I think it was something you could expect to happen every single game. It was a type of offense he could get. And so I thought that was interesting that you brought that up. And then additionally, yeah, who knows who this guy is going to be? He could be one of the rare, you know, all all defense level defenders. Maybe he gets there. Maybe he doesn't. Who also is like an isolation hub. That's a mm -hmm. really strange level of player. <laughs> and that's only that's only one option that he might end up pursuing. And, you know, based on feedback he gets from defenses and based on what he's able to accomplish, I imagine the roots can look quite different. I guess I should take a stab at LaMelo now and I'll kind of do what you did as far as. <laughs> Framing this player as I understand him and then being like, okay, there's some, I guess, roots to success that I see. And so LaMelo, as far as I understand it, one of the most insane levels of touch as far as anybody in the NBA, it still hasn't borne out in incredible shooting numbers. 
Trey Young went through something similar that you could see the touch was immaculate. There was, you know, different release points. There was a lot of different spots on the floor where he could get a shot off. And then this past year, Trey finally had what, like 38% on extremely high volume from three. Lamelo, it seems like, could go through a similar path to weaponizing his shots. And the big hold for Lamelo seems to be his ability to bust guys down off the dribble and to get like two feet in the paint off of just being, you know, quicker, more athletic, classic lead guard stuff. Like De'Aaron Fox will never make reads like Lamelo Ball, but Lamelo Ball will never punch a gap like De'Aaron Fox. And so Lamelo seems like maybe I'm being a little bit lower than the Hornets fan base would like, but uh, a connector piece, but like an all-star level connector piece, a guy who, man, if he played next to somebody who could definitely operate as a primary in the half court a little more often, I think that would be phenomenal. When I think of the ideal Lamelo situation, I think of a guy who in that pseudo transition or in transition offense has the ball in hand and moves your team that way. But in the half court, you put him on the weak side or you put him as a trigger man in lots of these different actions. You talked about his height and having access to different passing lanes and angles. You give him not responsibility to create, but you run touches through him like a hub in an offense. You give him tons of reads. And even as a guy on the weak side, like a pump fake, put the ball down. If he's scanning the court after attacking a closeout, I think that's one of the best guys to find the most efficient pass for the most efficient shot. Like... Kyle Lowry was always fantastic at this. He would get the get the weak side to go back to the weak side, then find a guy on the strong side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that little lay down that everyone was like, oh, yeah, we're trying to catch up. And he just stayed on the same side. It's Le'Veon Bell as a running back, being patient and letting the mm-hmm. defense make a mistake. And then, boom, it's there. LaMelo has always been great at that. So there's some manipulation stuff foul baiting stuff seems to be the best way for i guess foul baiting and shooting touch seems to be the best way for guys who aren't naturally super bursty to continue to make teams pay at the point of attack luca does it with strength creation chris paul does it with you know hall of fame level shooting from the mid-range and foul baiting and all that kind of stuff and it should be interesting to see as LaMelo grows into his body and also in how he wants to play, if he leans more towards one route or the other. Like, is he going to work on that touch or is he going to fully utilize his size at his position? Which uh, you can let me know if I'm right or wrong. He does as a passer, but I don't find that he's intimidating smaller guards if they're on him that often yet. And that seems to be, you know, like Lonzo is not, He's maybe a little bit more slight, but he's like Lonzo is a physical guard, especially on defense and stuff like that. I wonder if that's an avenue for him. I'd be interested between those two things. Of course, it's not binary. It doesn't have to be those two. Mm-hmm. He's in a similar spot to Scotty. Like you wouldn't want to provide a box for him to fit into. But I'm curious how he'll approach it from that standpoint. I think that's a good assessment of him. Like he, he need look first off. He he does need to get stronger. Like you know, uh, as I think he functionally is like pretty you know he's got like decent functional athleticism i think it bears itself out in create in in sometimes creative and surprising ways but you're right he doesn't have the just oh let me get a ball screen and just immediately just the instant advantage the instant easy advantage creation right where he can just get two feet in the paint off a screen or off one-on-one every single time like he can do some of it but there will also be some possessions where you'll see an opposing five switch out onto him and he can't, you know, he can't get around 
Um, and that can kind of gum up Charlotte's offense at times. They went to a lot of like empty corner pick and roll this past season with LaMelo. And I thought it had like varying degrees of success with that. I think ultimately you want to get, you know, a long-term pick and roll partner. I know we're, I'm sort of veering away, away from yep. LaMelo specific here, but like long-term they need to get a guy that can be a vertical threat and, and just like a true pick and roll partner with LaMelo because it was like, a big deal when Montrez Harrell showed up this past season and he's like, you know, Harrell's a, a pretty good veteran, you know, roller, but if you could really partner him with, with someone that could actually, you know, he could competently run ball screen, someone that's always going to force the weak side help or any of that type of stuff. I mean, someone like that would probably benefit Scotty long-term um, as well. But um I think often, like he has the touch you were talking about with Lamelo. He does have the. I mean, we see when he takes these 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 floaters and these runners from places on the court that no one else really does. You know, these sort of like he'll come off a ball screen and take a, a 19 foot, you know, one legged runner, and he'll make it 40 percent of the time or whatever. Which is like it's awesome that he can do that, and it shows it speaks to his skill. But I think sometimes you maybe would like to see him just turn the corner more or be able to constantly get downhill. And that may not always be, you know, that may not ever be a part of his package. But I think the hope is that he could uh, he could develop that. I think a lot of that comes in terms of strength, which like he's going to have to get he'll have to get stronger, um, he'll have to get better finishing through contact at the rim. You often see him this dating back to his rookie year. You know, you'll see him often kind of go with like a, a his like left hand to finish at times when maybe you wouldn't think he should. Whether it's like it's because he thinks it looks cool or it's a strength thing or he's trying to finish with the inside hand or whatever. But that is like a bit of a, a crutch for him around the rim as opposed to just always being able to rock it up and finish with his with his right hand. I, I do think that's something where he may never be like an incredible rim finisher, but I think he can certainly like improve. And there have been flashes of it. Like his ability to like attack switches is, can be frustrating at times, but he's not incapable of doing it. He kind of needs to just do a lean a little bit more in terms of his guile and his craftiness um, uh, as far as far as like beating switches or turning the corner. Um, but yeah, I do think long-term the hope would be that you could put a nuclear kind of ball handler or creator next to LaMelo because he, you know, I think LaMelo has been a pretty good three point shooter just in terms of like the percentages look good. The volume looks good, but like it's around 75% of his career threes that he's made as a pro have been assisted. Like he's a spot up three point shooter. He's not a, he's not like to this point, he's not like a, um, you know, he's not going to take a half dozen pull-up threes per game and make shooting the high 30s. And maybe that is a thing that he has to be able to do because then that's going to force those on-ball defenders to have to fight over the screen. And that gives him a little bit more space to get downhill. So maybe maybe that is a pathway um, just becoming – but, like, that's not easy to do, you know, become, you know, become a Kemba Walker type, you know, pull-up. And that's something that Kemba developed and got better on. Uh, throughout his career as he ascended to being an all-star in Charlotte. So maybe that is the possibility is just sort of like him improving as a pull-up shooter. Maybe there are some limitations in terms of strength and uh, just in terms of like, that's maybe a time where like the shot form, which is a little unorthodox, maybe that works against him to an extent. But I do think because of the size and because of the touch 
and because of the path and just because of the, the threat of him as a, a passer, I feel like there is a pathway to that. So, so maybe that is part of it. Um, and I don't know how much you want to talk about his defense, but the, the on-ball defensive stuff is not great. Team defense is like, can be interesting at times. He has the ability to sort of like make plays on the backside. Charlotte likes to trap a lot of pick and roll. Um, and often LaMelo does a nice job kind of like cleaning up and getting steals off those outlet passes to the short roller in the middle. Um, and then once he clicks into transition, like, you know, the, he's one of the best transition creators in, in basketball because of his ability to hit, hit it ahead where he is truly, truly uh, special. And, and I think kind of like a generational talent in terms of like the open floor passing with LaMelo. When I think of Lamelo's defense, I do, yeah, definitely it resonates to hear about the struggles at the point of attack. But I do also think that sometimes he's very capable of making those special off-ball plays because the same way that he's, you know, his court mapping is so impressive on offense, you kind of invert that principle and he can he can think along with the opposing ball handler. And like, what is this guy looking for? What is he seeing? And mm -hmm. he he will pop up in gaps that surprise people, I think, a lot of the time. I guess you want to continue to weaponize that while also making sure that there's less, um, I guess, mistakes made on that, on that side of it as well. Yeah. yeah. I think he could refine the gambling a little bit. Like I don't want him to lose that. Like that was a certain strength of his pre-draft. It was very obvious. Um, and so I don't want him to lose that aspect, but I do think he could kind of like tighten the screws a little bit and be a little bit more refined with when he's going for it. But again, like this becomes a personnel thing. Like Charlotte does need to find guys that are more frisky at the point of attack defensively. So you can kind of like shift around and put LaMelo in some of these more uh, opportunistic defensive roles. That's just a, that, that was the next question basically is when we think of LaMelo and teams, you're consistently, you have a star, you, basically you have a star you want to build around or you're in search for a star you want to build around. LaMelo seems like an ironclad player that you, whether he's your number one guy, number two, number three, if if you're going to be have a championship team, he could definitely be one of those three guys grow towards that. I'm curious what you think about how they've built around him so far. And you were kind of tiptoeing around that with the roller aspect and all the other kind of stuff. But I'm curious if we could get the Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah, I don't it's some good, some bad. I think for the most part, not that positive, honestly, unfortunately. Um, I do think to an extent Charlotte, since they drafted LaMelo, not even two full years ago, you know, I mean, it's crazy, November, 2020, but a week later, you know, they stretched Nick Batum so they can add Gordon Hayward. Right. And, and at the time I didn't love the Hayward transaction, though. I did see why they went with it. You know, you're bringing in a guy that can be a mismatch partner with LaMelo, that's going to take some of the pressure away from him because he's going to take tough defensive assignments. He can pass, he can shoot from all every level of the court. Um, but it does feel like Charlotte has both tried to like build a like instant, you know, playoff play in team around LaMelo while also looking at the like five to six year, you know, long-term or intermediate term plan around him. And I think that, that that's a good thing. Like they should be, having an eye on the future at times though, I think them trying to split the difference without having like a surplus of good young players or, or, or picks around him has caused them to fall into kind of a no man's land. That's really like, they're not in a really good spot right now. I don't think it's necessarily time for a panic or whatever, 
but you're just looking at the personnel around him and being like, who else is coming with this guy? You're just not entirely sure. Um, I do think in 2021, like last off season, there was a bit of a roadmap where they thought we're going to add long wingy, you know, hybrid forwards, hybrid wings. We're going to put these guys around him. And like, that's what we're going to load up the toolbox with. So drafting, trading back into the first round to get Kai Jones out of Texas, uh, getting JT Thor early in the second round, signing Kelly Oubre with your cap space, which that didn't, <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, but you could see like at least some idea. You're going to play fast and you're going to have lots of different guys for LaMelo to, to run with. Um, and then this offseason, uh, like, I think there was some success, some failure with that. You know, they ultimately, they make the play in, they lose again this past season. Um, and I don't think they had a very good draft this offseason. I don't know if we, if we want to get into all the nuts and bolts of that. But they, it looks like they have finally found a roller to pair with him, which is Mark Williams. Um, but I still think they need to find other ball handlers to place around LaMelo, like we were sort of talking about in terms of like finding guys who can constantly crack a defense. Uh, they've sort of signed themselves up to the Terry Rozier, LaMelo ball backcourt. And that has limitations because neither one of those guys are pure rim pressure guys, nor are they, you know, guys that can really be a force at the point of attack uh, defensively. So ultimately I would say, no, it has not been a great process building around LaMelo, but they still have some pieces they have some picks going forward. So there still are opportunities, but up to this point, I would say it's been sort of uninspired um, and at times directionless in terms of building around uh, their star guard. So when we talk about team building and all that kind of stuff with the Hornets, you are inevitably going to come upon the Gordon Hayward question and his fit. You talked about stretching Batum to make sure they could get him. What, you know, what goals they had when they got him what goals they have now may not be the same, but I'm curious. It's 61 million is on the books for the next couple of years. What is your wish for what happens with Gordon Hayward and the Hornets? Yeah. I mean, it's another sort of tough scenario. Look, when Gordon's played with Charlotte, he's been useful. Maybe not a, in terms of being like a, you know, in terms of producing $30 million a year in terms of value, but like, that's what they're paying him. And and when he's been on the floor, he's been good. It's just, you can't really bank on him being there for uh, anywhere close to a full season. And both each of the last two years when he's gone down um, two years ago, there were a lot of injuries that stacked up, but like this, the, what looked to be like a playoff push or at least a, a better team in the play in uh, kind of fell apart. So what would I like to see happen with Gordon Hayward? I mean, I'd like to see him. I'd like to see them, move that move the contract um it is just tough it's complicated because they kind of need him this season if they if they're going to try to you know somehow contend for a play in spot in the eastern conference which i don't think they're really going to be able to do unless there's just outlier growth from lamello which i suppose is uh, a possibility but short of that they just don't have the personnel on the roster uh, to really feel good about moving someone like Hayward and saying, well, we still have the, the secondary creation around LaMelo to make this thing tick. Um, the, there's the other aspect with Hayward where I'm not sure what the league-wide perception of him as a player is. Uh, my guess would be that most teams 
see that contract as having negative value. There are, I suppose, scenarios like the Lakers who may be looking to move Russell Westbrook and the Hornets are a team because of those, because of Hayward and, and maybe some of the other stuff they could offer, a la Terry Rozier or something like that, where they could potentially get in the door and get off some long-term money and also recoup a draft pick in terms of with that type of transaction. I don't know uh, if, if that's a real possibility. I think there's a, a non-zero chance of it. I just don't see it being likely. Um, that said, you know, at this point, if you can't find a type of trade like that where you're getting something back for Hayward as opposed to having to attach something to get rid of him in a salary dump, um, if that's the case, then I would almost be fine to just like wait it out. Like he's got two years left. Like the, the contract is that seems long, but like it's going to be, it's effectively an expiring contract once the deadline passes this season. So I would say move it if you can, but I don't think that you need to be um, completely desperate to get it out there and need to attach all kinds of stuff or whatever to desperately move the trade or, or to move Hayward. Um, my hope would be that you could find something that makes sense because right now, you know, he is also kind of in the way of some of your young guys if you want to get more playing time um, for a James Booknight or for a JT Thor. You could, I think you could, it could be reason that Hayward is, is sort of in the way. Um, it just depends on, I think, what the goals for this team are this season because if they're going to try to make the playoffs, and my guess is that Michael Jordan, the owner, would like to do that and that Steve Clifford, the new coach, would like to make the playoffs. My guess is that they're going to want to keep Gordon Hayward in the door and try to get some uh, production out of him this season. So I just kind of think it depends on what the short-term goals of this team are. My hopes, though, again, to reiterate, would be to, to, move, to move Hayward. And if you could somehow recoup uh, a, a, you know, a pick, then that would be, I think, actually like uh, kind of a win for the franchise. When I think of Hayward, I think he occupies a very, very unique place in the league. And I can't speak to how front offices view him because obviously his health would be the biggest thing. But as far as the dialogue, Hayward has undesirable uh, politics attached to him as far as the majority. <laughs> yeah, the there's majority, that too. <laughs> yeah, the majority of the, of the NBA fan base. And that means that he's going to be his play if it's good. And it has been when he's been on the court pretty damn good actually it's going to be muted somewhat i wonder if that plays into locker room anything like that for other franchises to consider or if they're mostly worried about this guy hasn't played a ton of games who knows what that looks like but he is a guy sitting on a team that maybe doesn't want to keep him forever that would probably have immense utility on a contender you talk about him kind of allowing Lamelo to get off some aspects of his game that applies to basically every team that wants to contend so yeah i i am curious about hayward what his future is and all that kind of stuff and uh uh, yeah, it, it should be really interesting to see how all of that shakes out, especially since the Hornets have had not only, you know, with just deciding on how they want to build their team, maybe changing a little bit, hitting a bit of a roadblock that maybe they didn't expect, but they've had other things happen with their team building that have just kind yeah. of thrown a crazy wrench into what yeah. they want to be able to do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that is broadly speaking why this offseason for them has been um, 
you know, I, I just think a bit a bit directionless. But like focusing specifically on on Hayward, um, he really can do a lot. Like you can like they run a lot of chin. James Brago would run a lot of chin pick and roll with him. So you let LaMelo pass it, then get off ball, and then let Hayward be the one running spread pick and roll in the middle. They would sometimes then flip to Spain pick and roll out of chin. And like they had good, they they ate off that stuff at, at times the last two seasons. Um, I thought Hayward, in terms of like him being a screener for LaMelo, there was one game two seasons ago against Atlanta where they just went at Trey Young and, and put him in as many actions as they possibly could, would try to make sure that he was on, uh, that you know Hayward could catch a switch with him and then attack. They run lots of like early offense pistol or 21 action. I, I, I like to refer to it as 21, but I know some people call it pistol. And like Hayward can be really good in that too as like um, you know a screener. Then he takes the switch. And then they can go high low. And that's something they can do with PJ Washington as well. But Hayward really is like a versatile offensive piece and he's a good shooter and he can really pass from a bunch of different levels of the court. So like I, we always on the Busby podcast, we always like to refer to him as like the half court stabilizer for Charlotte. And I do think that's one of the reasons why the last two seasons when he's gone down, they, they struggle in the half court because they're as much as they are a team that wants to, you know, they want to get into gaps. They want to like, they want to get to the rim. They want to get a piece of the paint. You hear James Borrego talk about this all the time. You know, he'd, he'd ask LaMelo, LaMelo, give me the rim. I want the rim. But for them to do that required, you know, collective ball movement. It, reti- it required some scheming. Um, it wasn't just, okay, we can run a, a ghost screen and that's going to get us the, the ball handler is going to get downhill and get into the paint. You know, it was, they'd have to get into their flow. So it's a, it's a ghost screen, then you throw it to the guy who's slipping, then that turns into a second side DHO, and then uh, and then it's a skip, and then now you're attacking the closeout. And like that's how they get to the rim. Um, and Hayward was was helpful for that, as both as like uh, a guy that could connect possessions, that could be the primary initiator, even if he's not at all a rim pressure guy. But um, but yeah. So again, I could see there are teams that could look at him and say like he can help us win a playoff series because when the game turns into a half court attack this is a guy that can do a lot of things if healthy for you it's just all of these things we're describing have almost very little uh benefit for charlotte this year like this is not a team that's going to be uh in a, in a in a playoff scenario and so i don't know my hope would be that there is some potential trade situation out there for hayward but it's just it's it's going to be tough but he is certainly a, a versatile offensive player uh if you can get him on the floor so I'm always interested by how performances create this, I don't know, legacy for players among other fan bases. Bill Simmons, for example, when a lot of the league would talk about like, oh yeah, DeMar DeRozan, he gets figured out in the playoffs, you know, all this kind of stuff. Bill Simmons would be like, I'm scared of that guy because <laughs> his favorite team had Isaiah Thomas and Avery Bradley. And that meant that DeMar DeRozan was going to absolutely mash that backcourt. Yeah. You, as a guy who covers the Hornets, you were seeing a lot of Helio Siakam mm-hmm. last year. And like the, did, was his game the one that it, the triple double got taken away afterwards? I can't remember. He had like 36 and 12 and nine after the game. Remember. I don't remember actually. But, but I kind of wanted to get your opinion of Pascal Siakam after he kind of ran roughshod over the Hornets this past season. Yeah, I mean, he's the kind. He's one of the player types 
that can just shred Charlotte's defense the last couple of seasons. It was like the big wings like that, or however you want to label him positionally, the like the like a heliocentric, you know, lead guard like Trey, or just the a, a guy like Jokic or or Cat, like big guys that could shoot. There's Charlotte had no answers for guys like that. Um I think Siakam's awesome. Like I, I don't know, top twenty, top twenty-five player, and you know, top thirty. I don't know what the number is, but he was incredible this season, man. I think I, I guess he is like kind of skinny, but I think there's like good functional strength, the spin move, um, his ability to operate in the pick and roll, his ability to attack one on one. I, I think he's an awesome <laughs> offensive player. Like I'm a big, I'm a pretty big Pascal fan. I like most of the guys on Toronto's roster. I think they've got, I, I really like the personnel a lot And in Siakam, I think is terrific. I'm not sure what the, what the perception of him is among Raptors fans. I'm guessing it's, it's pretty positive because he's awesome, but I, he's a guy that you, again, you see him lining up across Charlotte and you're thinking they've got no one that can really, like PJ Washington is kind of a guy that has the ability to guard some of these like hybrid forwards that can isolate and face up and attack. But um, yeah, no Siakam is a, is a matchup nightmare for a, a team like Charlotte. You, you said you like a lot of guys on the Raptors. And so it, it behooves me, you know, knowing who listens to the, this podcast, seeing the analytics of it, most of the people who listen would like to hear if you do <laughs> love other Raptors, who are they and why? Oh, well, I mean, we talked about Scotty, uh, who's someone that I like. I got into him even before he got into FSU, like some of the Team USA development stuff. Then also just the first year of the pandemic, I was looking for basketball stuff to watch and ended up going into a lot of like Montverde tape from that season. So watching Scotty, seeing Cade Cunningham, Dayron Sharp, uh, Moses Moody was pretty all like that was like a fun way to, to pass some time in like the spring and summer of, of 2020. I think it's hard not to like Thad Young. Like if you're a basketball dork, just because of the, the short role playmaking, the intelligence, the, the connectivity. Precious is a guy that I've been fascinated with since he was at Memphis. Um, and I think there were some really cool, like flashbulb moments in terms of development with him this past season Boucher as a guy that is, I don't know, like at unicorns, probably too strong of a word, but the, the, the hybrid front court guy that can block shots and, and, and step out and hit threes. Um, and then like, I will always have a spots, a soft spot for Gary Trent, whom I covered at Duke and saw him, you know, was at all of those games at Cameron, uh, his, his one and done season at Duke. Uh, I think it's cool that he's turned into, a pretty solid like two-way player in the NBA. Like his defense has come online. That Duke team that he was on played a lot of zone. Um, they really struggled guarding the pick and roll with with Bagley and Wendell Carter Jr. and Trayvon Duvall and Grayson Allen that year. And so I think Duke playing a lot of zone sort of like hid maybe some of the defensive upside that that Trent had. Uh, but the shot making is intriguing and it's very cool for me personally to have seen him like sort of grow into being like a rotation player, a real guy on 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 playoff teams, both like in Portland and uh, and and now in Toronto. So I know I'm just listing off guys, but these are all dudes that I that I really do like a lot. And and Trent makes me happy to see him, you know, finding a role in the NBA. Uh, 
which is, you know, he took a pretty unglamorous path from second round pick to sort of carving that out. So, uh, and, and I guess I would be remiss to not mention Fred Van Vliet, the shot making, um, the help defense. And then Del Curry will talk about this often on the, uh, the Hornets broadcast, but apparently Van Vliet has like a really entertaining, uh, like warm up routine, like to get his shot ready before games, which I have not seen, but I just sort of like that that component of Freddie's game. So um, I'm not trying to pander here and just listing off two thirds of the roster. <laughs> like I genuinely do like these guys, but especially Barnes and Trent, like any of the ACC guys, I'm I'm usually uh, pulling for. That's you say like, oh, yeah, I'm just listing off guys. But (laughs) quite honestly, that is why people like national media or international media, because, you know, they don't know. They typically don't know anything about the team. But if somebody on a podcast with a big name at ESPN says, oh, yeah, Pascal Siakam, I like that guy. Everyone's like, yes, (laughs) validation, recognition. So you just listing off half the roster and also saying some of their, you know, some of the things they've accomplished at college, that's going to do wonders, man. It's not even <laughs> pandering. It's just, it's good podcasting. Good, good, uh, good to hear. I'll be, the next time I travel to Canada, I look forward to being welcomed uh, back into the country with open arms here. Yes, absolutely. And so maybe not PJ Washington because Raptors fans have, are very aware of his game because they've been trying to trade like Malachi <laughs> Flynn and Ken Burch for him. For, so it's half the league wants yeah. to, dude, it is so funny. Like every, every week because i've tweeted out so many pj clips and stuff like that where it is funny to be like all of a sudden like you'll see like rockets fans or heat fans or like knicks fans like everyone will start retweeting and it's like oh this this fan base is definitely trying to like trade machine pj to their fan base for yeah like a couple of bad contracts or you know a crummy draft pick or whatever um but it's funny like the raptor like there's like 15 fan bases that have tried doing that with uh with PJ. PJ is very popular and, and yeah. for good reason. He's, he's good, man. He's good. He's he's a guy who not only when you watch the game you go, oh, but he's a guy you go to like you just type him in on basketball reference, it returns all the requisite numbers you would need to get excited about. So yeah. 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 But the same thing that we did for the the Raptors, I'm curious. We talked about, you know, being underwhelmed with Rozier maybe a little bit and and LaMelo Hayward a bit about PJ and Mark Williams. But is there anybody on the Hornets roster that you think is intriguing and that Raptors fans should pay attention to? For sure. And and just real quickly, I would touch on Rozier. The on-ball creation in the defense I find to be um, underwhelming, but he really has turned himself into like an elite movement shooter. Like it, it mm-hmm. I, it's something I just did not see coming. And I don't think the Hornets did because he was brought in to like be the bridge to replace Kemba um, before people knew what Devonte Graham was going to be. And well before LaMelo was on the franchise and the fact that uh, Rozier has found um, uh, this new like kind of career arc as an off ball mover and the guy that was featured prominently in Borrego's offense with that, um, I think is like he, he again often I, I'm like underwhelmed in terms of Rozier's game but the shot making and the movement shooting are uh, are, are pretty impressive um, I think I want to focus specifically with this question though on the 2021 draft like they used their lottery pick that year on James Booknight out of, out of UConn I didn't think that was like an amazingly inspired pick I thought a guy like Moses Moody was probably the way to go and that they just missed out on you know getting maybe a, a Franz Wagner or something like that who went a couple of picks early. But 
They need someone to provide some creation and to be a slasher. And, and Book Knight has kind of like an offbeat drive game, I think I would describe it. Um, he got, I think it was, it was close to, I think it was almost 17 to 18% of his two-point attempts last season were blocked, which was the highest percentage um, on the roster by a lot. So he's going to have to find some ways in the final third to be more creative, to be more clever. Um, he can be ex- explosive at times, but you know, he's, he's smaller and he's skinny and he needs a bit of like a runway for him to actually get to his sort of like above the rim game. But they were so desperate to win now last season that they almost never played James Booknight. Um, he sat the bench often. Um, and I think even when he did play, the usage was routed in kind of not ideal ways where they were kind of using him as like a microwave off the bench guy, you know, let's let him give him the ball and let him attack. And I think he's a guy you need to get into movement. Um, you need to have him running off pin downs, have him running off flares and rip screens. And you, that's how you really tap into like the best parts of his game. I don't, I wouldn't quite use this guy as just a pure, give him a ball screen and let him go kind of deal. I think there's ways to scheme up advantage for him and then let him be a guy that can give them some, um, some secondary offense. So I think his development's huge for them. And then the next two guys are, are Kai Jones, who was the other first round pick that year. Um, Kai doesn't really have a home defensively. Like he's a bit of a tweener. He's not ready to be like the low man, at, you know, play him at the four and have him be the low man. And, you know, he can't, you know, put out all your fires as a help defender that's roving around. Like he, he has the athleticism and frame for it. It's just in terms of the backline processing, like that's not there. He can't be a guy that's like chasing around guys around the perimeter either, and he can't be your like uh, your your defensive anchor that's uh, you know involved in all the different screen coverages. Um, he can do some switching, but that's really not like a, a big strength of his. Uh, in the G League last season with Greensboro, they tried to use him as kind of like playing him like drop, but play him like kind of up more to the level of the screen. I don't think that's really going to fly in the, uh, uh, you know, in the actual NBA. So I think finding a defensive home for him is a big deal because when you put Kai in surrounded by four shooters, his athleticism, the fake handoffs that he can use, the keep plays he can use to then get downhill or catch a lob from LaMelo when he's able to roll into space are a big deal. But that just involves being able to, either play him at center, which can be a little bit of tough, just given that you've got Mark Williams, you have Mason Plumley still on the roster. Um, but I think it'll in, in what are you going to do with him defensively? So I I like I'd like to see more Kai Jones this season. I'd like to see him kind of like tied to PJ Washington, who can give you can space offensively to allow Kai to be the the interior guy, the roller, the cutter. And um because PJ can play some center defensively allows you to maybe move and stash Kai in some certain areas. And then the last guy would be JT Thor. Um, who we saw bits and pieces of this past season. I actually thought he had a pretty nice game against Toronto this year, uh, where he, he took a couple possessions guarding Scotty Barnes. Scotty scored on him. He had a possession against Pascal Siakam. Siakam scored on him. But like those guys just overwhelmed him and overpowered him in the final third of the court. Like he was right there. So I like Thor's defensive versatility. Um, I think he's a guy that can do some stuff attacking closeouts. And he also showed an ability to be like the fifth option offensively. So cutting, you know, being a baseline cutter, crashing the offensive glass. I think he showed 
some real, um, I guess, production in terms of being like a low usage fourth or fifth option for Charlotte last season. And I'd like to see him sort of build off of that and maybe be a guy that can get, can give you, um, you know, you can run double drag and have Mark Williams dive and have JT Thor space. And then can he force a hard close out? Then if he forces the hard close out, what can he do with that? Um, there are some reasons to buy into him in terms of that, but uh, he's got to wait. Like he's still really raw and he did not look good at Vegas summer league this year. If you want to put, I, I don't know how much stock you want to put into, uh, you know, uh, summer league stuff, but it was not like a great showing for, for JT. So, I'm sort of hoping if you get him around LaMelo, PJ, some of the like more established guys and let him settle into being the fourth or fifth guy in terms of, of usage on offense, not being a featured guy uh, like he was at Summer League, that maybe that'll, that, that allows him to sort of settle down a little bit. So for Charlotte, I would really focus on that draft class, the 2021 draft class of Book Knight, Kai Jones, and JT Thor. I think those are all big kind of question marks for this team going forward and if one of those guys doesn't pop then um they're in even more trouble uh than they appear to be in right now that makes sense and it's time to focus on you we're at the the end of the podcast (laughs) and if you'd like to plug yourself and let the people know where to find you and and if you have anything coming up that they should be tuned into uh do so yeah, so I cover the Hornets for the BuzzBeat podcast. You can follow us at BuzzBeat Pod on Twitter. Um, we're, we do, you know, probably two, twice a week, we do pod episodes on the Hornets. So I don't know, maybe if they're coming up on the schedule for the Raptors and you want to poke in and see on how they're doing or you're interested in LaMelo, we, we obviously we talk LaMelo a lot. You can find the BuzzBeat Pod on any, any platform that has podcasts. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at bgeis, B-G-E-I-S underscore bird. Um, is a Twitter account that I made in college. So the name doesn't really make much sense at this point. Bird was my nickname back in the day. Um, so we're just riding with it, but there's, there's a lot of like film breakdowns, um, you know, interesting stats, hopefully on the Hornets, there's going to be a new playbook to map this season with Steve Clifford coming into town. So I'm excited to do that. Um, and there's also a lot of, you know, I freelance cover college basketball too. So, you know, if you're interested in scouting, seeing the next crop of NBA guys coming in, there's a, there's going to be a lot of that with a focus on, on, uh, on the ACC. So it's pretty ACC and Hornets, Hornets centric there. Hell yeah. Uh, for the listener as well, Brian is one of the best people as far as people that I follow for staying in tune with a lot of what Charlotte does from a schematics point of view. Uh, he's really great at keeping up with what they're doing offensively and will uh, has the courtesy to explain it in the tweet as well <laughs> to anybody who wants to learn about X's and O's and that kind of stuff. So Brian, thank you so much for coming on, dude. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. And listener, viewer, whichever it is, podcast channel, YouTube, uh, thanks for kicking around with us. Uh, There's lots more of these to come. We're probably coming up on like almost halfway through doing all these interviews. It's a lot of them. But uh, yeah, the the train keeps rolling on. Thanks for sticking around. And uh, yeah, we'll see you. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's the (laughs) podcast, Brian.